Welcome to Good Heavens, a podcast about the human side of astronomy and cosmology. Here are your hosts, Wayne Spencer and Daniel Ray. In his popular book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis points out that there are two basic views about the universe, a materialist view and a religious view. And it can be said that whatever your position is on the question of the origin and existence of the heavens and the earth, that it will profoundly impact the way you view everything else, including Earth's history. If one denies that God exists, the universe seems rather cold, dark, and empty that compared to the vast cosmic deep, we are alone and terribly insignificant, and the universe really wants to kill us. We are in a fight for survival, and our current self-destructive tendencies are threatening the very balance of nature and the environment. But Scripture tells us that God created the heavens and the earth, and that he sustains not only the earth, but the entire universe by the word of his power. As the Lord declares through the prophets, he formed the earth to be inhabited, and that the regularity of the sun, moon, and stars, his fixed order, seed time, and harvest will remain until he returns. God knows the way we take. He sustains our paths and the planet upon which we trod. He has created us and loves us with an everlasting love. On part two of our conversation with Institute for Creation Research physicist Dr. Jake Hebert, Jake continues to examine the assumptions behind the current climate science debate and unpacks more of the current scientific theories about ice ages. So, basically, what seems to be at the heart underlying all of this, the core of the issue, is whether or not uh, there is a governance of our climate. It seems like, in in some sense, the extreme climate argument for global warming would imply that we have much more control and influence on the environment than we think we do. That, uh, for example, uh, Mount St. Helens erupts and throws all kinds of ash and carbon into the atmosphere much more than... uh, what's hanging over the clouds of Los Angeles on any given day or any kind of pollution, that, that, that somehow man is much more able and in control and able to do something about the climate than, say, it, to me it seems as I was reading this part in your book that, that climate sensitivity boils down to, is there somebody governing? Is there yes. something governing the climate? So the scripture comes to mind, God telling the sea, you know, poetically, here you, you shall, your proud waves shall stop. Uh, the fixed order of which God speaks in Jeremiah 31, uh, Colossians, uh, that, that Jesus, that everything was created for and through Jesus. And, and, and then in, in Job, of course, we have the long discourse. Right. Do you know where the frost and the ice come from? Do you know the, where, where I store the hail? In other words, very anthropomorphically, God communicates to us that he's in charge of everything that's going on on the earth. And and so it, would you agree that the debate seems to be boiled boiled down to there being a mechanism for for regulating Earth's behavior and activity, right? That this this is really God exists, God doesn't exist. Do you think? Yeah. Uh, well, in a sense, yes. I, I, again, it, it gets back to climate sensitivity, and the arg- I'm arguing that the arguments that climate sensitivity is high are coming from an evolutionary and atheistic worldview that I think are wrong. 
And I don't think there's much evidence for that worldview. In fact, if you want to, we can go down another rabbit trail and talk about the problems with the evidence for the Milankovic theory. I mean, it's a doozy. I mean, I found stuff about this paper that is really scandalous, I think. Um, and it is shocking that they're still using this as evidence for the Milankovic theory. Or, uh, for the, and um, I don't think they've got any good evidence for it at all, even if you believe in millions of years. Well, one thing, um, yeah, if you want to talk about that, absolutely, let's go into it. Um, and, and if this is part of it, great. If not, ignore it. Um, but I think it was in uh, it's about a page 100 or so in your book. You're talking about the – and I, I don't know if this is in the Milankovitch, the, the Milankovitch paper, but uh, one of the anomalies in, in, in this whole discussion is the way in which the Earth has changed its, its magnetic polarity – and 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 this is evidenced in uh, the iron-rich um, minerals that flow from a seafloor. You have a, a pretty good diagram in the book here of normal magnetic polarity, where the Earth's magnetic system is functioning as we understand it. But then there's a dramatic gear shift, like putting your car in reverse very quickly, and all of a sudden the magnetic poles are reversed. But the anomaly in the secular uniformitarian view is there's no way, there's no functional way to explain why the Earth's magnetic field would reverse polarity in such a short period of time. Is that part of the uh, what undoes the Milankovitch in your mind? It, well, it, it, that's, that's true. What you said is true, but it's worse than that. Um, we would argue that those magnetic flips were actually caused by the Genesis flood, and we've got at least a conceptual mechanism for making that happen. But let's just leave that aside for the time being, okay? Uh, they think that those magnetic reversals happened hundreds of thousands of years ago. Now, the most recent flip of the Earth's magnetic field, they have a name for it. They call it the Brunhess-Matayama magnetic reversal. And it is a very critical tie point for their secular chronologies. They consider it a chronological golden spike. It's very important. Now, here's why it's such a big deal. Uh, the pacemaker of the Ice Ages paper, what they did was they, they got these two deep sediment cores from the deep southern Indian Ocean, and there, there were chemical wiggles. You know, they measured these oxygen isotope values that they think are a climate indicator in there, and they, they also measured a couple of other variables that they thought were climate indicators as well. Now, after they assigned ages to the sediments, they seem to be telling a story that agreed with the Milankovitch theory. Okay, because according to the Milankovitch theory, you should have astronomical cycles of about 100,000, 41,000, and 23,000 years. Well, when they did their calculations, there seemed to be climate cycles in those sediment cores of 100,000, 41, and 23,000 years. So they thought, of course, this must be because of the Milankovitch Ice Age theory. Now, now but here's the problem. Okay, what a lot of people don't realize is that even the secular scientists do not think that you can usually use radioisotope dating on the seafloor sediments. Now, they think you can maybe date the younger sediments, okay? But the deeper, to, more, to make a convincing case for the Milankovitch Ice Age theory, you need pretty long cores. You need cores, assuming you believe the secular story, that go back at least 500,000 years. Well, the problem is they can't really date sediments that old. So they use a backdoor approach. 
there there was another sediment core in the in the far western Pacific uh, where they had uh, you know you can see, you know there's magnetic minerals in those sediments okay and, and you you could see a magnetic reversal uh, there was a magnetic reversal at about 12 meters depth in this this core from the Pacific. Now, I'm not sure how they actually did this, but somehow they convinced themselves that those sediments at that location had been deposited at a nearly constant rate for hundreds of thousands of years. Well, they said, okay, the age of the top of that core is zero. The age at 12 meters is 700,000 years. And if the age is increasing at a constant rate, we can just use simple fractions to figure out, uh, to assign ages to the chemical wiggles in that core. Now, they think that these chemical wiggles are like a global climate indicator. They think, in theory, now they, they recognize this isn't always the case, but they think that in theory, if you have, like say you have a prominent chemical wiggle or a prominent chemical spike in one core, and you have another one that's kind of sort of in the same location or same depth, doesn't have to be exactly the same depth. They think those are going to be the same age. So they think, you know, it's called wiggle matching. So if you have a chemical wiggle pattern in one core that looks like one in another core, they will transfer those ages from core to core. And those cores can be separated by thousands of miles. They don't, they don't, they don't even have to be at the same depth. They don't have, the cores don't have to be the same length. But they do that. Well, they did that with the pacemaker paper. So they used this core in the Western Pacific, which they called it an Ice Age Rosetta Stone. That's how important it was to them. Because they thought they finally had a way to assign accurate ages to the ice ages, you know, when the ice ages would start and stop. And so they transferred those ages to some of the chemical wiggle patterns in those two Indian Ocean cores. And after they did that, boom, they got results that agreed with the Milankovitch theory. Now, here's the problem. Uh, it depended on the age for that magnetic reversal. Now, back in 1976, they were claiming that magnetic reversal occurred 700,000 years ago. The problem is today they claim it happened 780,000 years ago. Now, 80,000 years may not sound like a lot because, you know, they claim the Earth is 4.5 billion years old, but when you're talking about 500,000 years, sediment cores that are supposed to go back 500,000 years, that 80,000-year difference is a lot. And so what happens is I went back and redid the calculations using the new number, and it messes up the results. And so it's like, well, okay, you guys have just shot yourselves in the foot. Why are you using this paper as evidence for the Milankovitch theory when according to your own revised age for this magnetic reversal, it doesn't work anymore. You're mentioning this pacemaker paper, and they still use it. And this is a 1976 paper, is that right? Right. That's really, really ancient in the scheme of things in science. Why are Correct. they still relying on something from 1976? It sounds like it sounds like it's because they're afraid to touch the argument. Well, I, that could be. I mean. It, to be fair, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not even sure you could, even if the Milankovitch theory were true, I think you would be hard-pressed to prove it. Because I don't know, you know, in order for them to use that magnetic reversal, you have to know somehow the sediments were deposited at a constant rate. And I don't see how they could know that. Um, I personally... 
Well, I personally think they were engaging in circular reasoning even at that point before. But but the problem is, um, like I said, they now use the Milankovitch theory to date ice cores and seafloor sediments. Well, you can only do that if you have a logical reason to believe that the Milankovitch theory is correct. Well, the pacemaker paper was supposed to be that logical reason. That when they changed the age for that magnetic reversal, they knocked their results out of alignment with Milankovitch expectations. And and, and really, now, now they would, I, I, boy, this is so convoluted. They actually went back and they tried to clean up the mess they made around 1997, and we can talk about that too if you like. But if you really believe that that sediment core from the Western Pacific was an Ice Age Rosetta Stone, if you really believed it could give you accurate dates for the Ice Ages, it's not just that they no longer have evidence for the Milankovitch theory. The Milankovitch theory should have been falsified. Because according to that new age for the magnetic reversal, you had ice ages occurring tens of thousands of years before the changes in sunlight that should have caused them. Okay, so it's just, it's crazy. It's crazy. And and, and it, it's just a big convoluted mess. I mean, we could talk about this for hours, but needless to say, the evidence for this theory is incredibly shaky, even if you believe in millions of years. Even if you, yes. Well, even if even if even if you believe in an old Earth, I'm saying even if you believe in an old Earth, the evidence is shaky, incredibly shaky. This is one of the arguments people make against creationists. They say, "Look, how can you guys say the Earth is six thousand years old when you have all these dating methods that give a consistent story uh, of how of Earth history?" <clears throat> and in part of the consistency, apparent consistency of the stories coming from the Milankovitch theory because they use the Milankovitch theory to assign, they transfer ages from core to core to core. Well, that apparent, that's an apparent strength, right? Because it looks like you've got all these different agreements that are, method, you know, all these different age assignments that are agreeing. But it's also the greatest weakness because they're all ultimately tied back to the Milankovitch theory. So in order for me to, I don't have to go and show that every single one of those papers, I don't have to analyze them individually. All I have to do to call them into question is show that the evidence for the Milankovitch theory is in doubt. Because, because they use them. So, but what happens is it's like a chain of falling dominoes. Okay? They use the Milankovitch theory to assign ages to a sediment core. Those ages are transferred to another sediment core, which are transferred to another sediment core, which are transferred to an ice core. This happens all the time. It's like an interconnected web. So what happens to all those age assignments if evidence for the Milankovitch theory is lacking? They are all suspect, even if you believe in an old earth. The age question, the dating question, is not look at all these papers that agree with one another. It's look at all these papers that are tied back to one thing, one assumption yes. in the Milankovitch. One flawed paper, yeah, yes. Okay. Absolutely. All right. So I know at this point our listeners are uh, – many of them absolutely support what we've been talking about and are fascinated by this. Others are at this point tearing their hair out going, there was no flood, right? That, that this, is, this is just complete, uh, right, complete right. hogwash. The science is bad. You are so biased, et cetera, et cetera. So what I'd love I – I know you're, you're not an expert in geology. That's not your field, but – 
you do touch on the biblical flood in your book a little bit. And uh, we want to have uh, Tim on, who's your resident geologist at some point, to talk about this in more detail. But uh, for the sake of our conversation now, can you give us, uh, because I hear this all the time from my skeptic friends, there's no evidence of a flood in any of the geology, uh, major geology papers and, and assumptions and paradigms and uniformitarianism can explain away all the 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 information that there's in fact i read a couple of theologians um on the liberal side of the fence who did a book together who are not geologists but their conclusion was that there is no evidence of a global flood and so this is this is uh as we met in your office that one time i had mentioned it seems to go back to charles lyell and charles darwin tale of the two charles tale of the two charleses that that created a schematic and their primary motivation seemed to be by Lyell's own admission was to do away with Moses as an authority in terms of understanding geology so he did i'm not that's not a an internet myth uh, charles lyell said he wanted to get rid of moses in constructing his theory so what i'd love to have you do jake is just give us a some simple um simple things that that we can all take away from this conversation about what what are some basic principle geological evidences that you see that do point to a global flood? Because underlying our climate change argument and the Ice Age argument is ultimately the flood and the text of Genesis as being uh, reliable. Well, right. And, and, you know, it's pretty simple, really. OK, uh, you have sedimentary rocks that are all over the world and those sedimentary rocks are water deposited. Now, Here's what's interesting. Even the evolutionists do not dispute that the vast majority of those rocks are water deposited. In fact, I was talking to a geologist once, and I was I was writing a little essay on this was I was an undergraduate. Okay, I was writing an essay on why I believed in the Genesis flood. So I went to the secular geologist and I asked him, "Well, what percentage of sedimentary rocks are water deposited?" He goes, "Oh, about." Uh, 95%. And then I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm writing this essay about why I believe in the Genesis flood. He goes, well, maybe it's 90%. <laughs> but, but, okay, so it was just funny. But the point is they recognize that most of these are water deposited. Now, they'll try to tell you that a lot of them, like the mudstones, could not have been – they had to have been deposited under quiet, steady conditions. We think that's wrong based on flume experiments. But nobody disputes these are water deposited. And in those water-deposited rocks, you've got the remains of billions of animals uh, that were violently buried. I mean, that, that sounds like prima facie evidence for a Genesis flood. Not to mention the fact you have these flood legends from all around the world that sound incredibly like the Genesis account. And that's exactly what you would expect if the Genesis flood was a real event. People would remember it. They would tell it to their children. You know, the stories might get garbled a little bit over time. But that's exactly what you would expect. Well, it's fascinating in your book, Jake, on page 44, you have a wonderful graphic that anybody can look at and see. And this is not disputed. This is not just fringe science. There is something called the Tapit Sandstone. And uh, you say that it is a continuous sedimentary sequence that covers most of North America. It goes all the way up to Greenland and comes all the way down into Mexico. It is one continuous uh, flow of sandstone deposit, which would have been aquatically deposited, uh, which which is absolutely fascinating to me that, that you have these, you have such a thing. And it, it, if it was long and gradual over time, the question remains is how can you have such an enormous 
chunk of continuous sandstone existing for millions of years. Yeah, yeah. And that's this whole issue of mega sequences, which Tim can talk about this a lot better than I can. But yeah, and they don't really have a good explanation. I mean, you know, you've got these sequences that just cover huge amounts of area. Um, now, they will try to claim that these were gradual transgressions of the sea onto the land. We don't, we don't think that really works for a number of reasons. Um, for one thing, we often find marine and land creatures jumbled together, uh, which sounds a lot more like a flood than a gradual gradual encroachment of the sea onto the land over millions of years. But, um, yeah, it's just, you know, what you just have to look at the evidence objectively and, and take off the blinders because – it's overwhelming. Uh, you know, you know, you know, I, I, I'll admit, look, I'm not a geologist, but, you know, I, when I get on an airplane, I, I fly out over the southwest. You look at this land and, it, you know, it looks like it was shaped by water. It reminds you of like near your backyard <laughs> when you had a hose and you're seeing yeah. stuff that looks like it was formed by water. And um, it's all over the planet. This was dramatic to me in, in, in talking, but you just mentioned about the uh, violent, rapid quick aquatic burial that that marine and mammal life experienced uh, you know billions of fossils in the sandstone and things but you bring up something fascinating to in, in the book about the fam- the most famous t-rex probably everybody has heard of sue sue is at the chicago field museum uh t- talk about how sue was found in what position she was found and what the folks at the field museum are saying about that yeah, her snout was resting on her pelvis. <laughs> wow. Uh, uh, it was basically like, yeah. <laughs> and the placard says, well, that seems unusual. But they basically try to explain that as being due to muscle spasms, I guess. Um, but it's it's just, it, it's crazy. It's like, you know, you've got this enormous, powerful animal, and it basically gets folded in half. I mean, you know, what's going mm. on? And, and by the way, uh, many sauropod dinosaurs, the heads are missing. Uh, the bones are often disarticulated. Um, I mean, it, it looks violent. Yeah, and like in certain places, there's these large fossil graveyards. Sometimes you have many of the same species buried together, like many dinosaurs together, in like in a certain place, Colorado, for example. And then in other places, you have a mix of different kinds of creatures or many different creatures yeah. buried together in a mass graveyard kind of thing. And these are, these are things that point to some, something uh, of a great scale in terms of energy and power. Right. And that's a, right. A small event would not do this. I can tell you uh, one thing that's really so, interesting. This is something I found and talked about in my book. There is a surprising lack of ice age forest. Um, and this is a point that Mike Ord made back in 1990. Uh, he was writing his monograph, a technical monograph on how the Ice Age was caused by the Genesis Flood. And he quoted this old 1957 book where somebody said, you know, yeah, forest trees are kind of rare during the Ice Age. And now there's a very simple explanation for that. Uh, you know, thick forests that are naturally seeded take hundreds of years to grow back. Now, grasses and shrubs, they grow back much faster, but thick forests are going to take a long time to grow. And so if you had every single tree in the pre-flood world destroyed, 
it's going to take significant time for those Ice Age forests to grow back. And what's intriguing is that even the secular scientists acknowledge that thick Ice, uh, ice Age forests were rare during the Ice Age. Uh, now, they did, they did this by analyzing fossil pollen, which is kind of an inexact science, uh, but it seems to be pretty much worldwide. Um, uh, all the evidence I've seen so far, I think, is consistent with that. I haven't really – the only exception would be South America, uh, and <laughs> the, everybody acknowledges that the fossil pollen from South America is especially sparse, so to me that would be evidence that they were rare there too. Um, and there's a, there's a little thing about Australia – uh, Mike Ord has pointed out that he thinks some of the dating for Australia is off. I mean, regardless of whether you're talking about Pleistocene or Pliocene or whatever, these uppermost Australian sediments seem to be devoid of evidence of thick forest. And that's exactly what you would expect from the flood. And it's amazing. You can read all these quotes by secular scientists talking about, yeah, man, it's really weird. Where are all the Ice Age forests? And they try, they try to explain it by cold, dry climates, but I think really that's because they don't know how else to explain it. Uh, yeah. But it's easily explained by the flood. The flood simply destroyed every single living tree in the pre-flood world, and it took time for those trees to grow back. Yeah. Can you um, also, along these lines, briefly, can you ex- – because I get – this is this, the other question that I get is this idea of dating rocks and dating layers, and we've, yeah. we've touched on it briefly. Um, can you give our listeners some, some layman uh, perspectives on why uniformitarian methods of radiocarbon dating and other methods that are used to date rocks and things, what's wrong or what are the presuppositions that go into making these kind of age assessments? We talked about the Milankovitch problem, but but briefly in, in general, in, in your – physics background can you unpack the briefly what the uh, what the problems are with the way we date rocks today in the in the secular theory okay okay well the the, the radiocarbon is a little bit different uh, in that they use that for stuff that is supposedly fairly recent like maybe less than 50,000 years old uh, things that are thought to have been alive that were alive at one point when you talk about the age estimates for millions and billions of years, those are coming from other radioactive dating techniques. Um, and the, there, there's three main assumptions that they make when they use those methods, and we think all three of them are wrong. Now, to be fair to the evolutionists, one thing that we a long time had trouble explaining was, why is it that you see large amounts of daughter product you know, if you have half-lives of, say, millions or billions of years, and you've got large amounts of daughter product from these radioactive decay processes, that seems to be an argument for millions of years. And that was something we had trouble explaining. Uh, but around 2000, 2005, uh, creation researchers found a lot of evidence that the decay rates were accelerated at a time or times in the past. Now, we think that was probably during the flood, maybe before the flood. Uh, it, there, you can't, it has to happen at certain times. You can't, it can't happen at just any time. Uh, but there, there are some times where that could feasibly have happened. Now, to be fair, this is something we're still working on. You know, we, there's, there's potential problems with this. Uh, we're not sure how to get rid of all the excess heat that would be generated. Uh, but we think there's good evidence that this was the case. And if, if you don't take that into account, your age estimates are going to be inflated. Uh, 
they're going to be inflated by a bunch. So when you talk about um, just for just for explanatory purposes, you talked about uh, a daughter product or a daughter isotope. Right. This is what we would literally call the offspring of a parent isotope or a parent right. product. So yeah, there has exactly. to be a certain amount of mom and dad, or you know, a certain amount of the parent present. Right. First, that parent has to decay, if you will, and the decay of the parent isotope creates the daughter isotopes and so the dating assumption is that there is x amount of parent isotopes present in order to produce the x amount of daughter isotopes but the other problem i think with that is that is that correct is that accurate or am i well you have to know how much daughter element was there to begin with okay and um and you also have to assume that none of the uh elements have gotten into or out of the rock now both of those are dubious assumptions um and and listen we you can date rocks of known age from recent volcanic eruptions and you routinely get ages that are ridiculous you know hundreds of thousands or millions of years yeah yeah and and that's very strong evidence there's something fundamentally wrong with the method that doesn't explain why you're getting you know why you're getting the millions and billions of years but it does explain that there's something wrong there and we think um, we think we finally got an answer to why you're, they're getting the millions and billions of years. Although, again, this is something we're still working on. But but let me say this: you know, you mentioned radiocarbon dating. I'm telling you, these guys don't completely trust radiocarbon dating. And I ran into evidence of this in the pacemaker paper itself. You know, to hear these guys talk, <clears throat> they they make it sound like you know we can completely trust these radioactive dating techniques, and creationists are so stupid not to not to believe them. They don't believe them themselves, and I can tell you um, that there was a place in the pacemaker paper where it would have made a lot of sense to use radiocarbon dating, but they didn't do it. Now, they did radiocarbon date uh, another layer of sediment, which was really trivial. They could have completely ignored that, and it wouldn't have affected the outcome. But there was a place in the paper where they really should have radiocarbon dated the very tops of one of those sediment cores because they were claiming that those sediments were too old to use in their analysis. Well, if you really believe that, here's a test you can perform. Try to radiocarbon date the top of the core. And if it really is too old, then you're not – the radiocarbon test will show that. But if it's young, okay, the radiocarbon date would it would give you an age for the top of the sediment core. Well, they didn't they didn't even bother to do that, and I think the reason is because I think they were afraid they were going to get an answer they didn't like, and so they made no attempt to radiocarbon date the top of that second core, and they ended up excluding about a third of the data, and. Um, I think that was unjustified. In fact, uh, other evolutionists have since concluded that it was unjustified as well. But by excluding that big hunk of data, it made it much easier for them to get results that were agreeable to the Milankovitch theory. Had they used the data that they excluded and and they'd done everything the same way they had done in the paper, it would not have agreed with the Milankovitch theory at all. Interesting. Jake, I'd like to add a little on the radiocarbon. Sure. Um... In archaeology, occasionally, uh, archaeologists will turn to a geologist to get uh, something carbon dated. 
but uh, archaeologists often don't rely on radiocarbon a lot either. They would rather have uh, a piece of pottery to date something with than uh, to use the carbon date. Right. Um, and uh, one of the reasons they do that is because they found uh, over years of dating things that are human artifacts that there is a certain period of time where the the dates seem to come out off. They come out to inflated, I believe. Yes, yes. And, and it's because it's because it's around in the age range of around five thousand to thirty five hundred years ago, or something like that. Because in the time after the flood, there would have been an adjustment of things in the atmosphere because of changes in Earth's magnetic field and and the atmospheric changes with the effects of CO2 in the atmosphere would have thrown off the carbon dates for a certain period of years. Yeah. And so but but I think that if you if you go back to say about 3000 or 2500 years ago carbon dates may be more accurate but when yeah. before that it, it's probably off and would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, and you know, and of course one thing that helps is they can calibrate the method against objects of known age. Yeah. Um, but the problem is uh, you, you can only do that for so long, okay? And and when you start getting in, into the quote-unquote prehistoric time, the, the, the agreement uh, between the method um, and dates that are determined otherwise, there's a divergence. I mean, you can see it. You can see a graph where they start to skew, you know, close in the more recent past. Yeah, it, it works pretty well, but the farther back you go, the worse it gets. And of course, that's what we're really arguing about. You know, we're not arguing about the last two or even three or 4,000 years. We're, um, well, I no, well, I take it back. We are in some sense. We are, when we get back to 4,000 years, we're getting close to the flood, but, you know, the most, most recent two or 3,000 years, it seems to work pretty well. Um, but when you start getting into those farther ages, the farther you go back, the worse it gets. Jake, Wayne and I did a podcast a, a year or two ago about the flood, and our primary evidence <laughs> was uh, we, we, we concluded that Jesus affirms Noah, affirms Moses, affirms Genesis, and uh, through his resurrect, death, burial, and resurrection, which is historically attestable, um, that we have solid evidence from Jesus himself that uh, there were the days of Noah, that this flood did occur, um, and that uh, this you don't have to be a geologist or a scientist. It's not to knock geology or science or anything like that, but given our day and age where science is becoming more and more authoritative uh, for and, and used against Christians, Jake, I think your ministry to the body of Christ is invaluable. It is another voice that, uh, that though it is in the minority, um, I hope people have seen that you're well acquainted with the current scientific evidence that is used for secular paradigms and that you have a viable, thoughtful alternative created by working scientists in the field. Um, and so it's, it's wonderful. And your book is The Ice Age and Climate Change, A Creation Perspective. Uh, very, very readable, very accessible. Uh, and if you want to get into more of the science about why the fl- why the evidence for the flood, I recommend Jake's book. Uh, and so, Jake, I want to I want to conclude all this by saying that 
that the science is heavy. The science is there. It's it's. I'm glad people like you are doing these kinds of things. Um, and and just how does this finally tie into why is this? Well, in your in your perspective, why do people? It seems like the flood and Noah and the ark are like one of the primary targets of skeptics and atheists. They just mock it. It's and and they use science to back up their mockery. And and it's funny because when I engage people on this topic with, in social media, I get the mocking response. Oh, Noah and the animals, really? Uh, the flood, really? There's no evidence? And one time I, I shared with an individual who was doing this with me, I, I showed him a an igneous rock, a picture of an igneous rock. And I said, well, what kind of rock is this? He says, well, I don't know. I'm not a geologist. And a lot of times I think this this is the problem, that we get intimidated by people who say the science doesn't say, the science doesn't support a flood. But then the people who say this don't know the science themselves. Um, and so that what you do, I think, provides a valuable alternative to that. Well, yeah, and let me let me throw something out about that. Um, the Apostle Peter told us this was going to happen. You know, he told us there would come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust who would deny. If you read the passage in 2 Peter chapter 3, he, they deny three things. They deny that God created the world, they deny that he destroyed the world with a flood in the days of Noah, and they deny that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. And, um, you know, here's the problem. I, let me tell you why they mock. Um, I think some of it is deep down there's some fear. Because what if the Genesis flood really happened? What if it really happened the way the Bible says it did? It means God judges sin. And if he was willing to destroy the world in the days of Noah for their sin, what about all the sin that we're piling up? And, um, you know, if you're, if you're not willing to repent of your sins and, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, you're in danger of going to hell. And I think that's one of the reasons people have such an emotional response to this, because deep down we all know that the stakes are very high. Uh, this isn't just some academic issue. Um, if, if the Bible's telling the truth about history, then it's telling that it, it's very likely, okay, assuming you're not necessarily convinced yet that it's God's word, but it's, there's a good chance it's also telling the truth about heaven and hell. And for someone who is walking after his own lust, that is a terrifying thought. And if you're listening to this and you're putting your trust in these secular scientists and these dating schemes, uh, I, I hope, listen, you need to understand it's, it's, it's a house of cards. It's not the, uh, uh, it's, it's a paper tiger. It's not this formidable. It looks formidable, but when you dig into the details, it just falls apart. And uh, you, don't, you don't want to base your eternal soul on something that is based on shoddy science. Well, and it reminds me of the passage in uh, in Revelation, where in the end, when Jesus returns, what are people doing? They're crying out to the rocks. They are crying out to nature to hide them. Yeah. Um, and 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 in set in a sense, exactly what Second Peter and what you have just said is true. That they're right now, they're crying out to the rocks to save them from God's judgment. Uh, the rocks seem to be their savior. It's the yes. wrong kind of rock. Yeah. I mean, Paul calls Jesus the rock, uh, the rock from which the water flew, right. uh, uh, flowed in the wilderness. But the, uh, the the rocks in the canyon, the rocks in Antarctica, the rocks, the ice, none of that's going to save you. That's the wrong rock. 
Um, I, you're absolutely right. This is really good. I, I do think we should emphasize that, you know, the reason we bring up things about God's judgment is not to scare people. It's because we believe there really is hope. And, and uh, you know, we have all experienced God working in our lives, and it's um, we, we try to uh, give people hope from our program and show that uh, Christian faith makes sense and it's, it's uh, you know, the biblical yeah. answers and why, are and, why, answers. and, you know, people need hope right now. I mean, people, you know, with all the pandemic and all this stuff yeah. going on, uh, people need hope. And um, the Christian faith provides it. You're right, Wayne. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think the, as as Paul says to the Epicureans and Stoics on Mars Hill, uh, God has overlooked times of ignorance, and yeah. now calls people to repentance, as you said, Jake. But that is yeah. that gives people hope. I just watched an atheist video who was basically taking apart and putting down this idea of forgiveness that somebody can do some kind of heinous crime and and Jesus can forgive them. But he overlooks the fact of how healthful and hopeful forgiveness is. If you've been granted forgiveness, it frees both the victim and the perpetrator, that, that someone who has committed a sin or has committed a crime can be forgiven. And the victim can also, if, if they choose, they can forgive as well. And that forgiveness between those two people is very powerful, and it's very freeing. And it, it saves you from a life of bitterness and anger and, and, and all of this. And, and so I think... I think it's great that we can we can look at the the rocks. We can deduce from creation that God created everything. I mean, this is what Romans 1 says. We can see God's invisible attributes in what he has made. He lets the, the sun and the rain on the just and the unjust. He lets us experience the wonders of his creation. And I think even for Christians who are listening, who, who know this, uh, this is this this reminder of the flood is 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 a is a a prod if you will to to remember our need of turning to Christ as well for repentance of our own of our own sins that we struggle with a lot too so there's there's a lot of connectivity as we said at the beginning of the broadcast between a a scientific paradigm and and a moral foundation for your science you know that that it ultimately rests upon does god exist does god not exist is there a moral foundation for my existence creation has a moral fabric built within it it was very good at one point and then sin entered the world and 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 denigrated the creation to some extent that we certainly still don't know how far our sin affected everything else but it certainly does impact our lives and and turning from that sin does make the world literally a better place even if it's just you know, one person at a time or whatever. So I, I thank you, Jake, for being able to so wonderfully make the connection between good science and, and good theology and how it can give us hope and how it can remind us that, that God is coming again. He's not going to destroy the world in, in water this time, but it will be burnt up in fire. So what what manner of persons ought we to be with such truth uh, that we should be sharing this. And, and so that's what our podcast, as Wayne said, we're trying to do, to trying to exhort and encourage. And uh, so, Jake, we thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Your book is wonderful. Uh, how can, so leave us, leave our guests with some information about how they can find out more about your book, your a website, the, the ICR. How can we, uh, if somebody's interested in what you've been saying, how can they, uh, how can they follow up? Well, our website is icr.org. And uh, we've got thousands of articles dealing with all kinds of topics uh, related to 
Christian apologetics, especially as it relates to origins. <clears throat> and we have a bookstore. You can you, know, you can just go online, go to the store, and you can order the book. Uh, the, it's uh, it's available online. Uh, we also have it in our Discovery Center. We're hoping to reopen that in early May, and we sell it in the Discovery Center as well. So we've got that. We've got lots of other resources as well. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jake. It has been a privilege and an honor to uh, see what you're doing at ICR and to be engaged with you. And uh, we hope uh, our conversation with you will continue. Thank you, Jake. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. The prophet Isaiah saw and heard the seraphim crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. As Christians and stewards of creation, are we ready to give a defense of God's glory? Our conversational style interviews are designed to encourage and equip you to better understand the worldviews of other religions, cults, and ideas, enabling you to have more confidence in conversations with non-believers, planting seeds and pointing the way to the glory of God. Thanks for listening to this episode of Good Heavens. I'm Dave Mitchell.